So like I said, we're going to be in Acts 13, Acts 13, and I'm going to start with uh, a prayer for us. Father, I thank you for the gift of your word. I thank you for this opportunity to look at it together and learn together what you have for us. Thank you so much for the opportunity to be here in this country that has made it possible for us to do this freely. Lord, we think of so many of our fellow brothers and sisters around the world who cannot meet freely. We ask, Lord, that you would bring peace in the regions where Christianity is um, under persecution. I just want to think in particular of our, our spiritual family in the country of Iran, Lord, where conversion is illegal. We just ask that the gospel, the word, would just continue to explode there and that many, millions more Iranians would turn to faith in Christ. And we pray this and bless our time now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so this morning we're going to be working through Acts 13, and we're going to be tackling the whole chapter of Acts 13. So I'm not going to read the whole chapter for us at the beginning. Uh, that would be uh, take half our time, right? It's a long chapter, 52 verses. So what I'll do is I'll just give you a roadmap, and then we'll, we'll work through it together. So this passage starts off by mentioning Antioch in verse 1. That's where we were back in Acts 11. We were in Antioch. You might remember some of the things we talked about about Antioch. It was a, a big base hub for gospel ministry in the ancient world. It was located 300 miles north of Jerusalem. The, the churches of Antioch had sent Barnabas and Saul down past Jerusalem to the region of Judea with some financial aid to give to the Christians that were struggling there because there was a famine going on. Now, I want you to look at verse 25 of chapter 12. There we read that Paul and Barnabas, after dropping off the aid to the Christians in Judea, finished their mission and returned to Antioch. As they went back, they took with them a disciple named John Mark. Now, John Mark, his mother, was the one who owned the house that everyone was praying in that we read about last week. So you can look back at chapter 12, verse 12. Chapter 12, verse 12 of Acts. Do you see that there? In the text, so John Mark's mom was the, the guy, the, the, the lady who owned the house that everybody was praying in. So important people in the life of the church in Jerusalem. And so they take this young guy, John, who's actually Barnabas's cousin. Paul says that in his letter to the Colossians, chapter 4, verse 10. And they journey all the way up north to Antioch, 300 miles. So they go back. And this time, Paul and, Paul and Barnabas, they're back in Antioch, and they have this young disciple with them, and he's their helper. So 
That's where the story starts today. That's a little bit of setting for you, some of the background. And we're starting in Antioch. We're going to see three things in chapter 13. We're going to, these are all in the back of your bulletin if you want to follow along there. We're in verses 1 to 3, we're going to see that the Lord chooses his messengers. So Jesus has a new work for Barnabas and Saul. Second, verses 4 to 12, the Lord's messengers are going to go on their first journey together. They bring the word to a big island to Cyprus, which is in the Mediterranean Sea. Third, the, Lord met, the Lord's messengers bring the word from Cyprus now to Pisidian Antioch in verses 13 to 52. Not to be confused with the other Antioch. This is the Pisidian Antioch, different town. Now, technically, the last couple verses of the chapter are a bit of a transition as Paul and Barnabas then leave for Iconium. But I just kept it all in, in one chunk because the concluding statement of the chapter uh, is, is kind of part of this all, that, that the word keeps spreading. So look at verse chapter 13. Uh, or look at, I'm sorry, this is going to be the summary statement for chapter 13, right? Wrapping our arms around the whole thing. The main idea, what's this chapter all about? I wrote it there for you on the paper. The word of the Lord spreads from Jew to Gentiles through the messengers, these Paul and, Paul and Barnabas, despite the devil's opposition. So the word spreads from Jew to Gentile. How does it spread? Through the messengers, Paul and Barnabas, and it spreads despite two huge examples of opposition. They meet up with a Jewish sorcerer who opposes them. And they meet up with some Jews who run them out of town in Pisidian Antioch. So, starting with verses 1 to 3, the Lord chooses his messengers. Jesus has a new work. For Barnabas and Saul. So let's read these verses. Now, starting in verse 1. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. And he lists a few. Barnabas, Simeon, called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menan, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, that means going without food for a time to focus your mind and heart, the Lord, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. So there's two main things I'd look to, like to look at in these, this little cluster of verses. First, the Spirit of the Lord chooses Barnabas and Saul for his work by setting them apart. See that in verse Two, he says, set apart for me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I've called them. So these two men, Barnabas and Saul, they, we learned in a couple stories before in Acts 11, they had been teaching the word of God in Antioch for well over a year. And now the Holy Spirit is recommissioning them. Now, we, when, we read, when we read that the Holy Spirit said something, back in verse 2, see that? The Spirit said. We're not told exactly how the Spirit said it. For example, 
you may remember a few chapters ago, the Holy Spirit of Jesus tells a man named Ananias back in Acts 9, verse 15, about what the Apostle Saul's mission is going to be. Saul's mission was to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And then in that story, the Lord appears to Ananias in a vision to tell him this is going to be Saul's mission, right? So maybe that's what's happening here. Maybe these men are praying and fasting. And one of these guys that verse 1 says is a prophet receives a, a vision from the Lord and shares it with the group. Guys, I just had this, this vision the Spirit gave me of Paul and Barnabas being set apart and going on mission. So the Spirit said, perhaps they're sitting there and they hear, set apart for me, son. Maybe. I don't think so because we don't really see that in Acts. We, we see a lot of other things. Uh, perhaps the Spirit communicated by pressing the words spoken on the mind and hearts of one of the Christian prophets praying there. And they, they hear this, this sense. Paul and Barnabas must go. Set apart for them. Well, regardless of how the Spirit says this, we're not exactly told, but we are told what the Spirit says. He's calling these men out. This is what God does throughout the book of Acts and throughout the history of the church. God calls out men and women to do his work. And when it happens... It's not the duty of the church of Jesus to cling to them tightly and say, No, we need you here. You can't leave Antioch. Obviously, we know that people can leave their ministry posts and go elsewhere for a whole host of terrible reasons. Right? Hmm. How about Jonah? Running from God when he was supposed to do a ministry, right? So running from God is one reason to leave a ministry post. And that's not what Paul and Barnabas are doing here. This is not... Jonah heard God's call and he ran. Was he hearing God's call when he was running? No, he was following his call on his life. So, so there's a way to, to, to um, leave that's not healthy. But when people leave... Um, and God is at work, the church's job is to let them go. And that's what the church does in verse 3. We see that after they fasted, they placed their hands on them. That's a sign of commissioning someone. And they sent them off. Now, does everybody have something like sent them off or sent them away in their Bibles? Your translations? Sent them off. I, I did a quick scan. I can do that on my fancy computer program of diff, the different computer uh, translations. And it all says something like sent them off or sent them away. And, and that's, that's a, basically what happened. But uh, if, if, you, if you look at the verb, what the verb there actually means, um, it's the idea of releasing someone. So, for example, the same author, Luke, uses this same verb for sent off. In the, in the release sense of it, back in, in Luke chapter 13, verses 11 and 12. There, Jesus is in a synagogue, and a woman was there who'd been crippled for 18 years, and she's bent over and couldn't straighten up, and Jesus sees her, and he calls her forward and says, Woman, you are set free. You are released from your infirmity. 
Same word. Okay, that's how Luke uses this word. It means I let go. I release. That's what that word means. I let go. I, I free somebody. I've been holding on, and I go, okay. And the reason I bring this up is not just to geek out about a Greek word. No, it's because I think that's at the heart of what this means, is, is when God calls people to, some, to go somewhere on reassignment, yes, we send them, but first we have to let them go. We have to let them go. We've got to release them. Our church knows what that feels like. Several years ago, we let go Brian and Angela, dear friends who'd been ministering at this place for three years, teaching the word, loving people, pouring their hearts out in ministry, and for various reasons, we felt like God was calling them to pursue a degree in Kansas City, a free, all expenses paid, right, PhD program where Brian could be trained to better do what he loved. Now, there's much more we could say about that process, but to let them go, to release them, through tears even, was a painful experience, and yet we saw the hand of God at work. Now, I want to pause here a minute as we think about this idea of calling, God calling people to do something, and I want to say that this gets a little tricky in our Western societies, okay, like America. We're absolutely drowning here in our culture in something that the various thought leaders of the world will call individualism. Have you ever heard that word, individualism? Individualism. Here's a definition from good old Google. Uh, individualistic societies are those that prioritize the needs of an individual over the needs of a group as a whole. So there's like tribal thinking, right? Like communal thinking, like we, we, we rise or fall together, we're a team. Or there's like individual thinking, the, the, the me first, look out for number one, right? In this type of culture, an individualistic culture, people are viewed in an independent way, and I'm still reading from good old Google, and social behavior tends to be directed by the attitudes and preferences of individuals. That's America, 100%, 1 million percent, okay? And there's a million ways that individualism has impacted the Church of Jesus Christ in America. And, and now collective cultures, cultures that group think, they've got their own struggles and sins. So I'm not saying, I'm not just picking on individualism. We, we, we want to be biblical. But individualism, here's one particular area that I really think individualism has affected us in America. A Christian, in the area of calling, a Christian will decide often all by themselves that Jesus is calling them to do something somewhere. And the decision, when they finally when they decide that, it's already made. It's made up. They've decided. Counsel is not sought as a part of the process, at least not until after they've already made the decision. Um, or and it's simply, God told me that settles it. You can't argue with that, right? Can you argue with God told me, right? 
And, and I don't think that this, this is what this passage here would encourage, this idea of calling. Now, sometimes God does call someone out, and the community is all naysaying it, and no, that's really, truly what God wants them to do. Like a, a child, perhaps, who really feels strongly called to be a missionary, and their parents don't want to let them go. And that child goes and on and pursues missions. That, that happens. I've had friends that that happened to. Um, but even in that case, when they pursued their calling, they surrounded themselves with, they got training, they got equipped, they got qualified, they had a lot of people speaking into their life, even though their parents were not a part of that. So I, what, I, what we see in Acts is, is that people don't generally make me, myself, and Jesus decisions, okay? The church community here we see in Acts 13, they're praying together. And God calls them together to set apart two men and let them go. So all, all I say here, the area of Christian calling, it's a huge topic. We're not covering that in our, you know, that's not what this sermon's about. But I just want to say we want to use wisdom as we think through the call of God and lean into each other in community. And here it's the community. That's group. This The community is sending and releasing Saul and Barnabas. Saul and Barnabas aren't having these epiphanies. Now, we will see in the book of Acts, God gives Paul a strong calling. And, and uh, he's got to press on with his calling, even though people are saying, uh, maybe rethink this. So we're, we're going to see some of that, too, as we go. But calling is often in community. And that's a good and healthy thing. The second point this morning is that the Lord's messengers bring the word to Cyprus in verses 4 to 12. So verse 4, the two of them, Paul and Barnabas, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, and of course John Mark is with them, they went down to Seleucia and they sailed from there to Cyprus. That's a big island in the Mediterranean Sea. You can go there today. I've heard there's good seafood there. Pause, right? This was a natural place for them to begin their missions trip. Uh, in Acts 4, verse 36, Barnabas was born there. It was his hometown. <coughs> so Barnabas is going home. Now look at verse 5. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. Now, you might say, wait, I thought they were on Cyprus. What's Salamis? Well, Salamis was a really big city in Cyprus. And so... They proclaim the word of God starting in the Jewish synagogue in that city. Uh, ultimately, the word that they're proclaiming, we'll see what this is. It's the message about Jesus. In a few minutes, Paul's going to have a sermon, and we'll see. So that's an example of the word that they're talking about. Um, now, John, verse 5, is with them as their helper. That's the John Mark that we read about earlier. Barnabas is cousin. And now, as they're preaching the word, they're about to face some significant opposition from a Jewish sorcerer. Verse 6, they, they traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There, they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Son of Jesus, Bar-Jesus. Bar is Aramaic for son, son of. And so the son of Jesus, 
um, who was an attendant of the proconsul, Sergius Paulus. So he attended, was a servant of the bigwig on the island of Cyprus, the proconsul, a guy who worked for Rome. And he was an intelligent man. He sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elamis, the sorcerer, the sorcerer, for that is what his name means. So he's a guy named Sorcerer. His name is Elamis, and Elamis means sorcerer. Um, and, and he's also called Bar-Jesus. Opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. So it says this guy was a Jewish guy, but he's not a follower of Judaism. All right? Because you're not supposed to be sorcerers in the Old Testament. They would be, they would be put to death. So... Um, He's a Jew who has become a false prophet. And he's demonic. He's doing everything he can to oppose the word about Jesus. But the word conquers. Look at verse 9. Then Saul, and this is interesting. Now we have a switch. This is the switch. Now we start calling him Paul. Here it is. Now Saul, who is called Paul. I, I, I can't help wondering if they... Luke decided to make the switch here because we just read about a guy named Sergius Paulus. <laughs> Did you see that back in verse uh, is it seven? The the proconsul Sergius Paulus, and now he's like, oh, you know, actually Saul was called Paul too. I, I don't know. I don't know why he decides to do it here, but he does. And so Paul, that's another name that he goes by, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elamis and said. You are a child of the devil. You ever remember what Jesus called the Pharisees? You brood of vipers. You, you brood of vipers. Um, brood is like offspring, seed. Uh, this is language that is borrowed from Genesis 3.15 in the Hebrew Bible. The seed of the snake. You ever heard that language, the seed of the snake? Remember that from Genesis 3.15 where... God promises he's going to send a, a new Adam who's going to be born of a woman and is going to defeat the Satan's followers and ultimately the devil himself. You seed of the snake. You child of Satan. Sobering stuff. And an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Satan was the first deceiver what it means to be a child of Satan. You do what Satan does. You oppose Jesus and deceive people. And that's exactly what this guy is doing. Kids act like their parents quite often, right? They imitate what they see. And if your father is the devil, that's why Jesus called the Pharisees the children of the devil. He calls these religious leaders seed of the serpent because they're trying to murder him just like Satan Tried to murder Adam by getting him to turn against God, plunging him into death. So, this is a deceitful, trickerous, trick man full of trickery. He says, Will you never, verse 10, stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now, verse 11, the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. Immediately mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. 
Where have we seen this before in the book of Acts? Anybody remember? Somebody who's blind, groping about, needing to be led by the hand. Saul. Saul! Yes, good memory. In Acts 9, the apostle Saul is trying to murder Christians. He's opposing Jesus, and Jesus stands up from his heavenly throne and blinds him. And the point of the blinding was so that he would realize, I need to see who Jesus is. And when he sees who Jesus is, he becomes a follower of Jesus. And I can't help but think that this same blinding here for Elamis is in hope. That Elamis, when he opens his eyes, will realize there's a new power in this world. The power of the Son of God. And I need to follow him. But we're not told what happens to Elamis. We're told that he's, he's blinded. And that the plans of the devil to stop this ruler, Sergius Paulus, from coming to faith, Satan's plans are thwarted. In verse 12, you see, when the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed. For he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. Not just the fact that his sorcerer, who's had his ear for... How many of you are familiar with the Lord of the Rings scene where there's the king and there's Grima Wormtongue who's speaking lies into his ear and the king has gotten like all shriveled because of the, the lies of this Grima Wormtongue? If you're not a fan of Lord of the Rings, I'm sorry. You know, that, I, I love that movie. But, but this guy needs to be set free. This king needs to be set free from the sorcery of Grima Wormtongue. I think Tol Tolkien had this story in mind perhaps, but... Regardless, that's what happens, and the word becomes precious to this Gentile ruler, the proconsul who worked for Rome, is now a follower of the king of the Jews, the Lord Jesus. Now we're going to see next that no amount of opposition can spread, spread the stop of the word, you know, stop the spread of the word. So we're going to see that again in the next section. The Lord's messengers bring the word to Pisidian Antioch. The section, before I jump right in and read, is broken into two chunks. The first is where the gospel comes to the Jews, and then when they oppose it, it goes to the Gentiles. So first to the Jew, then to the Gentiles. So that's what we're going to see here. And we're also going to see that just like the gospel was opposed by a Jewish sorcerer, in the first story, the gospel is going to be opposed by Jews in the second story who are jealous of the preaching about Jesus and how many people are turning to Christ. So I think the author Luke wants you to see that this Jewish group in this story that we're about to read that opposes the teaching about Jesus they are doing the same thing that a sorcerer did in league with the devil. It's not good company. And so we'll see that as we read through the passage. So the word is preached. Verse 13. From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. 
want you to keep that in mind. John Mark leaves. He bails. And we're going to learn more about this in a few weeks. It's just a, a quick note here that Luke makes, but th there's more going on here. He, he jumps ship. This is, this is not a send-off here. He, he, he abandons the, the mission. We don't know why. Verse 14, from Perga, they went on to Pisidian Antioch. On the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and sat down. After the reading of the law and prophets, the, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them, saying, Brothers, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, please speak. Right? So it would be like if a famous pastor showed up to our church that we respected or we knew he might have a word to talk to us, and, and I finished my sermon, and then I'm like, hey, do you have any word to share with us? And he comes up, and Paul's like, oh yeah. You know, he grabs the bike, and he's got a word, right? He starts talking to them. He says, verse, six, uh, verse 16, fellow Israelites and you Gentiles. So there's Gentiles there as well, non-Jewish people who have become Jewish. They've, they've become circumcised. They keep the food laws so that they can go into the synagogue and worship God. And he says, listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors. That would be Abram, Isaac, Jacob. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. And with a mighty power, he led them out of the country. That's the story of the Exodus. For about 40 years, God endured their conduct in the wilderness. Grumbling, moaning, complaining. We want to go back to Egypt. 40 years he endured them. And he overthrew seven nations in Canaan giving their land to his people as an inheritance. Paul is really summarizing the Old Testament story fast. Did you notice that? He went from Genesis to, to uh, Joshua in like two sentences. Okay? So this is well. It's Stephen could have taken some notes from Paul in Stephen's sermon. No, I'm just kidding. But Stephen had a much longer sermon about the story of Israel. All this took about 450 years. See that, verse 20? After this, God gave them judges. So now we're up to the book of Judges. Until Samuel the prophet. Now we're in the book of Samuel. Then the people asked for a king. And he gave them Saul, the son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled 40 years. Uh, after removing Saul, he made David their king. So now we're at the end of Samuel. God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. Verse 23, Paul moves from King David to Jesus. From this man, David's descendants, that's Paul's summary of the whole book of Kings, David's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus, as he promised. Before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. So now Paul flipped the page from the end of Israel's story, and he's turned to the beginning of Jesus' story. See what he's doing? He's just telling the history. He's like, now John, we're at John the Baptist. And as John was completing his work, he said, who do you suppose I am? I am not the one you're looking for. But there is one coming after me whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. 
Now Paul says, verse 26, Fellow children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers, the Sanhedrin, those 70 bigwigs back in Jerusalem, and Herod and Pilate, they did not recognize Jesus. But in condemning him, when they voted to kill him, they actually fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. So what Paul is saying there is that when the Gentile rulers, Herod, Pilate, the guys that killed Jesus, when the, the chief priests and the rulers of the Sanhedrin said crucify him, they were actually fulfilling God's plan that was predicted in the Israelite prophets. The very same prophets that they would sit and read in all their synagogues. The very same prophets that they knew by heart predicted what they were going to do. Now, can any of you remember, let's say one place in the Old Testament, the story of the Old Testament where uh, a prophet predicts the death of this coming Messiah? Anybody remember one place? Somebody say what? Isaiah. Isaiah. Remember what chapter? 53. It actually starts in 52, verse 13, and it goes to the end of chapter 53, where Jesus is like a lamb led to the slaughter. This suffering servant character that Isaiah says. Another place we talked about was in Daniel 9, when we preached through the book of Daniel. A Messiah will be cut off, it says, but not for himself. Not going to be because of his own sins. He'll be cut off. And in that day, atonement will be provided for the people of Israel. Sins will be done away with in that day. They'll be forgiven. Psalm 22 is another place. So these prophets predicted what was happening to Jesus. Verse 28. They, cruci they killed him according to the prophets, though they found no proper ground for a death sentence. He'd done nothing wrong. But the mob wanted him to die. They asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. So now he's up to the book of Acts. Did you notice that? He's just, this is a huge story of the Bible. He said, Jesus died, Jesus rose, and people are witnessing about him. And hey, here I am with the microphone. <laughs> That's what's happening right now. Okay? They are now witnesses to our people. We, with the microphone now, tell you this good news. What God has promised our ancestors about Jesus, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. Now Paul starts to quote some Bible. As it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son. Today I have, um, some of your translations probably will say something like become your father. Um, I don't have time to get into it. It's not actually the very helpful way of translating it. It's 
I think it's better to just say, today I have begotten you. Um, the language of begotten uh, is a language of enthronement uh, that comes from Psalm chapter 2, predicting the heavenly installment of the, the Son of God as God's begotten King. Um, so I don't have, I wish we had time to just do a deep dive there, but we don't. Let's look at verse 34. Jesus' enthronement is when he ascends from the grave and takes the throne. And Psalm 2 predicts it. And to, to take a throne, to be installed as a king, one way you could say it is you've been begotten. Uh, you've, been, you've, been, you've become an official representative of the divine being. Just like a son is in the image of their daddy. So the, the one who images God is begotten by him to rule in his place on his behalf. And so this king, David, um, would have a son begotten by God to rule, as the prophets said. And God, verse 34, raised him, Jesus, from the dead so that he will never be subject to decay. As God said, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. That's a quote from Isaiah 55, 3. And he goes on, verse 35, so it is now stated elsewhere, and now he quotes Psalm 16, you, God, will not let your holy one, that's a reference to the Messiah, see decay. He's not going to rot in the grave. Verse 36, now when David, the guy who wrote Psalm 16, had served God's purpose in his own generation, David fell asleep, and he was buried with his ancestors, and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. So in other words, Paul is saying, um, when David wrote Psalm 16 and said, you, you make known to me the path of life, and your right hand is pleasures forevermore. When, when David said, um, you will not abandon my soul to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. David was not abandoned to the grave. David will be raised again. But if David, when David says you won't let your holy one see decay, if David is talking about himself there, which is what a lot of the Jewish rabbis would say, oh, David's just saying he won't see decay. Um, you know that David's body rotted away, don't you? That's what Paul's saying. So David couldn't have been talking about David or David was wrong. David is talking about a holy one Somebody coming from his line, a Davidic king who's never going to die. He will, his body won't be abandoned to the grave. He will be raised. Therefore, says Paul, verse 38, I want you to know that through Jesus, the, the one that wasn't decayed, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Take care that what the prophets have said doesn't happen to you. And now Paul quotes from another prophet, Habakkuk 1.5. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I am going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. 
When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them, urging them, continue in God's grace. So things end on a pretty neutral note there. We don't have any word of persecution yet. People are responding positively to the message. Paul had some pretty sharp words for them. Don't, don't do what the prophets said people often did when they faced God's message. You won't believe even if someone told you. Well, I'm telling you now. Are you going to believe? Well, let's look at what happens next. Soon they're going to shift their ministry to Gentiles. Verse 44, on the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. They began to contradict what Paul was saying and heaped abuse on him. Do you see here how this is exactly what the Jewish sorcerer on the island of Cyprus did? He contradicted the message. He opposed the message. These people are acting the same as Elamis. Elamis was in league with the devil, which the implication would be these people are following the devil's wishes in opposing the gospel. Now, look at verse 46. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly. And they said, we had to speak the word of God to you first, Jewish, Jewish people. We had to come to you first. Since you reject it and don't consider yourselves worthy of eternal life. That's, that's quite a way of putting it. You reject it and you don't consider yourselves worthy of eternal life. I'm preaching life to you. I'm preaching to you, says Paul, about how to have your sins forgiven and become right with God. And you're like, yeah, I'm out. I don't want this. He says, we now turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord had commanded us, said Paul. And here Paul quotes Isaiah 49, verse 6. He says, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you... Excuse me, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. So Isaiah 49, verse 6, God says, I have made you, and we'll talk about the you in a minute, a light for the Gentiles, that you, whoever this you is, may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, Paul says to the Jews, you're rejecting the message, I'm going to the Gentiles. Remember, the whole city's here, almost the whole city. Thousands of people, probably, listening to Paul. And he says, I'm going to preach this message to the Gentiles. And he quotes Isaiah. When the Gentiles hear this, they are glad and honored the word of the Lord. And all who were appointed to eternal life believe. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region. But the Jewish leaders incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. And by God-fearing there, they don't mean 
Jesus following. They mean um, women in powerful positions, married to men in powerful positions, who have been involved in the worship of the one true God in the synagogue, the, the Jewish God. But they were rejecting Jesus. And so they stirred them up. They got them to stir up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from the region, verse 50. So verse 51, they shook the dust off their feet as a warning to them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So, as we conclude this chapter, what we see is our main idea has come to, uh, to a full circle. The word of the Lord spreads from Jew first to Gentile. Now they're preaching to Gentiles. And it spreads through the Lord's messengers, Paul and Barnabas. John Mark jumped ship. And it spreads despite the devil's opposition in both places. And now let's think of some application. First, Christians are the light of the world. And the scroll of Isaiah, who is a very important prophet in Israel, we read in Isaiah 9, verse 2, that the people walking in darkness will see a great light. You ever walked in darkness before? I got lost one time in a marsh. I think I've told some of you this story. And my, my flashlight was dead. And there was only one place to cross the marsh without getting really, really soaked. And it was cold. And, uh, and I needed a light. I couldn't find the place. And my phone was at 1%, right? I was panicking, called Holly, got her all freaked out. Um, that's not a good thing to do. But point being, eventually my light came back on and I, I was able to get out. But I, I was lost in darkness. And it was scary. The people walking in darkness, spiritual darkness, clueless about who God is, will see a great light. And in Isaiah 9, that's where we read that, the, the chapter goes on to talk about the Messiah, God's coming King Jesus, who would be a light. To the people. Later on in Isaiah's scroll, he talks about the light again. Isaiah 42, verses 1 to 7, we read these words about the Messiah who's coming. God says about the Messiah, Here is my servant. He calls him a servant. Jesus is the suffering servant. Here's my servant, says God, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him. Remember when the spirit comes on Jesus? When does the spirit come on Jesus? At his baptism. Yeah. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. He's not going to be a, or he's not going to raise a rebellion. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In other words, if your faith is just smoldering and barely aflame, and you're really struggling, Jesus isn't going to just go, enough of you. 
If you're a reed that's broken and bruised, he's not going to just be like, well, this reed is worthless. He's not going to break it. He brings healing. In faithfulness, he will bring forth justice, says Isaiah. He will not falter or be discouraged until he establishes justice on earth. In his teaching, the islands will put their hope. This text is in the back of Paul's mind. <laughs> right? He was just on an island. Cyprus is one of the islands that's putting their hope in Jesus. Isaiah 42, 5. This is what God, Yahweh says. The creator of the heavens who stretched them out, who spreads out the earth with all that springs from it, who gives breath to all its people and life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you. And I will make you, the servant, to be a covenant for the people. Remember Jesus? This is the new covenant in my blood. He's going to be a new way that the people relate to God. And a light for the Gentiles. To open eyes that are blind. Do you see that everything Jesus did was laid out from the prophets? Opening blind eyes. To free captives from prison. And to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. Jesus viewed this as his mission throughout the Gospels. How did Jesus know what to do? He read, he read the Bible. That was the template for his life. He saw himself as the servant of Isaiah, bringing light to the world. Now, here's something really interesting in the book of Isaiah. And this is something that um, you guys appreciate this. No other Bible commentary has ever pointed this out. Our good friend, Brian Barrett, pointed this out. Now, people will, people will mention that in the book of Isaiah, God can talk about the servant and his Jesus, but then uh, he talks about servants, and, and it seems like we start doing in the book of Isaiah what Jesus did. Um, well, in the book of Isaiah, the language of servant is all the way up to Isaiah chapter 53, where the servant gives his life on the cross for the sins of the people. As soon as Isaiah 53 is over... The language of servant switches to plural. Servants. And the servants, plural, carry on the mission of the servant. So if you want to write this down, Isaiah 54, 17 is the first place that the word servants occurs. And then you can just track that. And the word servant, singular, never shows up again in Isaiah. It's like the servant's mission is over. In Isaiah 53, and now it's the mission of the servants. Um, that's the book of Acts, isn't it? You will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, which is a phrase actually from Isaiah, that my righteousness will go forth to the ends of the earth. So the servant, now Paul says, he, they are a light, quoting a passage that in context was about Jesus. Isaiah 49 was about Jesus in context. I'll make you a light for the Gentiles. That's addressed to the servant, to the singular servant, Jesus. But the reason that Paul says that's actually our mission now is because Paul says, now Jesus' mission is my mission. And I have a Bible passage to back that up. It's Isaiah. Thou the servants carry on the work of the suffering servant. We are the light of the world, friends. <laughs> We are the light of the world. Like Paul, we're called to be lights shining in the darkness. 
to live in ways that stand out. When we show love and compassion instead of anger and rage at people, that shines. When we show hope and trust instead of fear and terror, that shines. When we rejoice instead of grumble, 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 moan, 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 why am I? When we rejoice, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, that shines brightly. When we weep over our sin, when we're truly broken by it, that shines. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. I had a couple of other applications. I'll, I'll just skip to the last thing for sake of time. 13 was a big passage to cover. But I just want you to notice how verse 52 ends. They've been run out of town, guys. Run out of town when all they did was try to tell people the good news. And now they're filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. As Christians, we can be joyful when our message and our way of life and everything about who we are is rejected, not appreciated, scorned, blasphemed, misunderstood, spoken against. We don't need to groan and moan and wail about how godless the world is becoming, about how the time is getting nearer, the world is getting worse. Just look at what they're teaching in schools. No, do not be surprised when the godless are godless. You are the light of the world, so shine. The church is a city on a hill, not America. So be most concerned about your sin, Christian, and be most thrilled about your own salvation through Christ. And let's be a people who rejoice in the Lord always. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would fill our hearts with joy at the good news of Jesus. I ask that you would stabilize our hearts whenever we face rejection, that it would drive us deeper into the source of our joy, which is Christ, our coming King. I pray that we would run to him with all our might this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.